if you have your Bibles with you, again, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job. Job chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 529. We're continuing our series in the book of Job, and we will look at Job chapter 2 this morning, and I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject, sitting in the ashes. Job chapter 2. And this is what the Word of God says. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone in his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this... Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namatite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Have you ever experienced a day or a week or an extended season in which it seems that the trials of life just continue to pile up all around you and you find yourself saying things have gone from bad to worse. As we transition from Job chapter 1 to Job chapter 2, the events of Job's life move from bad to worse. In the opening scene of chapter 2, the narrator employing almost identical language as that of chapter 1, 
pictures God and Satan resuming their dialogue regarding Job. Satan, not content with Job's suffering, hurls another accusation against both Job and God. In response, God grants Satan permission to inflict more suffering on Job. And as Job's sufferings reach their pinnacle, the narrator reveals that there are both negative and positive responses to suffering. When it comes to the subject of suffering, one of the most difficult areas to navigate correctly is one's response both to suffering and the sufferer. And as we examine this chapter together, we will see the response of Satan to suffering, the response of Job's wife to suffering, the response of Job to suffering, and the response of Job's friends to suffering as Job sits in the ashes. Notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 through 8, the response of Satan to suffering. His response is manifested in four ways in these verses. In verses 1 through 3, we see Satan's persistence. The Bible says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now you'll notice there's no indication in the text about the amount of time that lapses between the events of chapter 1 and the events of chapter 2. In these first three verses of Job chapter 2, a second heavenly scene unfolds. And once again, notice carefully, we are given a perspective on Job and his sufferings that Job never receives. And this is yet another way that you and I can relate to Job. Just as Job's perspective was limited throughout his suffering, your perspective and my perspective is limited in our suffering. However, when we are in the midst of the trial, we must remember what Job remembered, that God is involved in our suffering, that our affliction is never meaningless, and that it is always connected to God's eternal purpose for our lives. Now you'll notice that the narrator tells us in verse 1 that there was another day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself to the Lord. This repeated scene, just like the one in chapter 1, was another time of reporting by the angels. And like chapter 1, during this time of briefing, Satan also came and presented himself before the Lord. In verse 2, you'll notice that God once again asks Satan where he has been. 
And once again, Satan responds, saying from going to and fro and on the earth and from walking up and down upon it. Satan's answer here, just as he did in chapter 1, reminds us that this world is the arena where Satan wreaks chaos. Cast down to earth with a third of the angels, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, stalking prey and devouring victims, and he will continue to do that until the day he is finally placed into the bottomless pit of eternal destruction. But we must remember that the devil is not yet in hell. He is still very active, roaming the earth, bent on destroying lives. And we see that again here in chapter 2. You'll also notice that once again in verse 3, it is God who brings up the subject of his servant Job. And he repeats and reaffirms the fourfold description of Job's character that he revealed in Job chapter 1 and verse 8. But you'll also notice a difference in this description in verse 3. God also emphasizes that in spite of all of the calamities that Job has experienced, Job still holds fast his integrity, even though Satan incited him against Job to destroy him without reason. The word incited stands out in this passage. It means to stir or to allure someone to a course of action that they would not normally take. In other words, what God did in allowing Satan to afflict Job was not a normal course of action for him. God's treatment of Job here is the exception, not the rule. So then this begs the question that we have to ask of the text, right? Does this mean that God's will and God's purposes can be influenced by Satan and that Satan can alter God's plan and purpose for our lives? And the answer is emphatically no. As you will see in this text, God is absolutely sovereign over all things, including Satan. And therefore, it is God who is ultimately responsible for Job's suffering. And although Satan attacks Job, and although Satan attacks God, and although Satan accuses Job, and although Satan accuses God, look carefully at verse number 3. God affirms in this verse that he is the one who is ultimately responsible for Job's suffering. And while God is in charge and sovereignly permits Job's suffering, the text also makes clear that Satan is the villain. That Satan is the one who incites God. And so the point of these first three verses is to make three truths crystal clear to us. Number one, God is always in control. Number two, Satan is guilty of wickedness. And number three, Job's suffering was not a result of sin. Satan's persistence. 
In verses 4 and 5, we see Satan's persuasion. The Bible says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone in his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The response of Satan in verses 4 and 5 is similar to his response in Job chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 in that it was an attack both on Job and God. Satan, the accuser of Christians, charges Job in verse number 4 of being selfish, saying to him, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. This phrase, skin for skin, is a proverbial saying. It's used to describe a bartering or trading of animal skins one for another. And the second phrase in verse number four helps us understand this proverb. Because Satan says, skin for skin, and then he says, all that a man has, he will give for his life. And Satan's point and accusation concerning Job here is simply this, that Job was really not a man of integrity. He was willing to endure the loss of his animals, the loss of his servants, and even the loss of his children if it meant he could preserve his own life. Satan was accusing Job, saying that Job was willing to sacrifice everything that he had to save his own skin, skin for skin. According to Satan, Job is all about self-preservation. And if given the opportunity to choose between his estate and his family and his own health, Job would choose his own health over everything else. He's not really a man of integrity. He is a selfish, wicked man. You'll see in verse 5 that Satan moves from attacking Job to attacking God and his character, saying, you stretch out your hand and touch his bone in his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And with this statement, Satan was once again telling God what he told him in chapter 1, that the only reason Job worships you, God, is because you bless him and protect him. And if you remove the blessing, he will no longer serve you, and he will no longer worship you. Just watch and see, God. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and touch his flesh, and you'll see that Job will curse you to your face. One of the most prominent commentators on the book of Job, he authored three volumes, describes what Satan is saying in this way. It's very powerful. God, only when you strike at the man's life will you see of what temper he really is. He has given up his possessions in exchange for his life. But now that he has only his life, Attack that, and you will find that Job attacks you. And he attacks you in the only way he can, by cursing you to your face. Satan's words were a full frontal attack on God and his character because they imply that God really isn't worthy of worship for who he is. 
He is only worthy of worship for his blessings. And once again, this passage of Scripture establishes the entire theme of the book of Job, all 42 chapters. The question that Job will face and the question that all of us will face is simply this. Is God truly worthy to be loved, obeyed, and worshipped for who he is? Or do we only worship him for his blessings? If all of his blessings are taken away, will God himself be enough? When you and I experience suffering and loss, and it makes no sense to us, will we still worship the Almighty God? In verse 6, we see Satan's permission. The Bible says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. And in this verse, we are once again reminded that no matter what happens in this world and no matter what happens in our lives, God is on the throne and God has everything completely under control. You and I need to remember this morning that Satan is powerful, but he is not all powerful. He could not attack Job's possessions without God's permission. And in verse 6, he cannot attack Job's person without God's permission. And you'll notice in verse 6, just as in chapter 1, that God not only took down the hedge around Job, but he also set boundaries around Satan's activities. Satan was allowed to touch Job's bone and his flesh, but Satan could not take his life. We need to remember this morning that God is sovereign over the affairs of the angels. God is sovereign over the affairs of human beings. And His sovereignty is seen in that He is the one in whom the sons of God come and present themselves, including Satan. God is so sovereign that He is the one who initiates the conversation with Satan concerning Job. God is so sovereign that he takes full responsibility for Job's suffering in verse 3. And God is so sovereign that he limits how far Satan can go. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God is a mystery. But listen, friends, it's a comfort. The sovereignty of God gives us hope in the midst of the most horrible hardships and suffering of life, because God is sovereign over these things, He is able to bring unimaginable good out of immense suffering. You and I struggle with this truth, and we struggle with it because we are limited in our wisdom. We're limited in our understanding. We are limited in our perspective. At times, all you and I can see is the devastation that suffering brings. And the suffering blinds us at times from seeing 
how God uses suffering for our good. It blinds us from seeing the impact that our suffering has on those around us. And it blinds us from seeing how the suffering of our lives makes us more like Christ, brings glory to God, and advances His kingdom. And that's why, friends, you can find comfort and rejoice in the sovereignty of God. And I would submit to you this morning that there is a direct correlation between your view of God and the way you respond to suffering. I would leave you in this section of the text with this question. If God is not in charge of the events of this world and the events of your life, who or what is? Is there anything that is higher and greater and better than the Almighty? Is there anything wiser? Is there anything more glorious than Him? If He is not the one you look to, if He is not the one you rest in, if He is not the one in which you find answers, who or what is? Do you really believe He's sovereign and in charge? In verses 7 and 8, we see Satan's persecution. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. With God's permission, the text says Satan went out immediately from the presence of the Lord and he renewed his attack on Job in verse 7 by striking him with sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. Now there is all kinds of speculation about the disease that Job was afflicted with. And I could spend the rest of the sermon this morning describing for you all of the different theories. But I'm not going to do that because I have more important things to tell you. And the simple fact is this. The Bible doesn't tell us. So we'll go with what the Bible does tell us. And the Bible tells us that Job was afflicted with sores that covered his entire body from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. These sores are literally translated in some translations, boils. Refers to a skin infection that oozed pus. This affliction was so devastating. Do you realize that in Exodus chapter 9 verses 9 through 11, the sixth plague that God placed on Egypt was a plague of boils similar to what Job is experiencing in this chapter. Satan's attack on Job was personal. It affected his bone and his flesh and it was comprehensive. He was covered in these burning inflamed sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And if you study the book of Job carefully, do you know what Job does throughout the remainder of the book? Time and time again, he describes and gives insight into his physical condition. Listen 
to some of the ways Job describes his pain and his suffering from these boils. In verse 8, he has severe itching. In verse 12 of this chapter, he has degenerative changes in his facial skin. He's unrecognizable. In chapter 3, in verse 24, he has a loss of appetite. In that same chapter, he experiences depression. In chapter 7, in verse 5, he has worms that crawl in to his sores. He also has hardened skin, and the sores are running and oozing. In chapter 9, in verse 18, he has difficult breathing because of his condition. In chapter 16, in verse 16, his eyelids are dark. In chapter 19, in verse 17, he has foul breath. In chapter 19, in verse 20, he loses weight. In chapter 30, in verse 17, he is in continual pain. In chapter 30, in verse 30, all of his skin becomes blackened. And in that same verse, he develops a fever. And to top it all off, Job describes this condition as lasting for months on end. Satan knew exactly how to inflict the maximum amount of suffering in this man's life because he was intent on destroying Job. And according to verse 8, if you see in the text, the only relief that Job could find was taking a broken piece of pottery and scraping the boils with it. You'll also notice in this verse that the presence of these sores all over Job's body has rendered him an outcast to society. And by attacking his bone and his flesh, Satan has isolated Job from the rest of his community. And now, as verse 8 says, he sits in the ashes, scraping his body with broken pottery. Now, you have to understand and appreciate the picture that the narrator is describing for us in verse number 8. This ash heap in which Job was sitting on referenced the local dump in Middle Eastern cities. It was a location outside the city where the garbage and human waste were dumped. And occasionally, as a means of sanitation, they would go out to the dump and they would burn all of the waste and all of the garbage. And the fire would leave ashes that would harden over time and eventually as more and more fires were burnt the mound of ashes would rise higher and higher and higher so that from a distance as you were walking to the dump you could see the pinnacle of the ash heap and that's where the outcasts of the community that's where those who had an unrecognizable illness or disease were sent to quarantine away from everyone else. And the Bible says it was there that Job sat on top of all of those hardened ashes, isolated by himself, an outcast of society, scraping himself with pottery. This was the ultimate humiliation for Job. The one who was known as the greatest among all the people of the East now sat on the ash heap, 
surrounded by dogs who were fighting for scraps of food. And there he is sitting in the ashes. Listen carefully to your pastor this morning, church. This passage and these verses that I've just described and explained to you are a stinging rebuke to the false teaching known as the prosperity gospel. It's a form of teaching that claims that it is God's sovereign will for all of his people's lives to be healthy and to be wealthy. And that if you're not experiencing health, and if you're not experiencing wealth, it's because you don't have enough faith, and it's because there is unconfessed sin in your life. And I would say to you this morning that when prosperity preachers, if they ever touch on the book of Job, they say Job's suffering was a result of his sin. And I've shown you through the text of the word of God that that is not true. They have no answer to the suffering of Job because they don't have the true gospel. And you say, Pastor, why are you getting all excited about the prosperity gospel? Because there are people watching from home. There are people in this room who suddenly believe that what they proclaim is true. That there's something wrong with God if you're sick or you're suffering. That the reason why you're not healed is because you don't have enough faith. That the bottom answer to every means of pain and affliction in your life is sin. Job teaches us that that's not true. God does heal. But it may not be his will to heal you in this life. But in the life to come. In fact, I will tell you this morning that it just might be God's will to use your illness and your suffering as a vehicle and a means to take you to glory in his presence. Are you okay with that? This is why you have to hold on to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. The Lord Jesus Christ has secured our healing and he has secured our wealth and he has defeated Satan through his death on the cross. As a result, you and I are rich. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our forgiveness and our salvation is secure and our suffering will one day end and we will never experience pain, sorrow, or loss again and Satan will be cast into hell forever. And there is no false gospel that can give you that kind of hope. It can only be found in Christ. So we not only see the response of Satan to suffering, we see in verse number nine the response of Job's wife to suffering. Now look carefully at the text. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? 
curse God and die. When severe trials come, often the only thing, humanly speaking, that keeps us going is our spouse or someone close to us, like a good friend. And it's in those times of hardness that we're drawn closer together. But you'll notice in verse number 9 that the one, humanly speaking, that Job depended on the most abandoned him in his time of need. First, she asked Job a question. Do you still hold fast your integrity? And with this question, she is paying tribute to Job's tenacious faith. And she uses the same words, notice carefully, that God uses to describe Job and his response to suffering. That Job, in the eyes of his wife, indeed is a man of integrity. And then she gives him some counsel. Do you see it? Curse God and die. And do you know what she's really saying to him when she tells him to curse God? It literally means that she's telling him to commit suicide. That Job, if you would just curse God, God will kill you. And it will all be over. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan writer and preacher, gave a powerful description of her words to Job in the midst of his suffering. He says, curse God and die. Live no longer in dependence upon God. Wait not for relief from him, but be your own deliverer by being your own executioner. End your troubles by ending your life. It's better for you to die once than to always be dying you may know despair now and of having any help from God, but if you'll curse him, you can hang yourself and die. And you'll notice that her words, curse God and die, are exactly what Satan accused Job of doing when God removed the props. And it's because of this verse and this phrase that Job's wife gets a bad rap. She's been called all kinds of things by all different kinds of commentators. But before we throw her under the bus this morning, I think we should pause for a minute and reflect a little deeper on the text. The family wealth was gone. She was no longer the first lady of us. And she had lost 10 children herself. Her husband, who was the greatest man of the people in the East, now sat alone with some kind of disease all over his body, sitting on the ash heap, isolated and alone. What did she have left? She saw no possibility of Job regaining his health. And she saw no possibility that Job would regain his wealth. And listen... She's human. She couldn't take it any longer. And rather than watch her husband waste away moment by moment, day by day in pain and shame, she would rather see him curse God and God take his life so that her suffering and Job's suffering would be over. 
It's why we need to remember that when life is difficult, it's easy to give up. But giving up is the worst thing you can do. It's understandable how she would respond to suffering. The reality is it's extremely difficult to live close to someone who is suffering and to be utterly helpless in those moments to relieve them of their pain. And it's often in those moments when we're caring for those who are suffering and we can't really help them that our frustration turns to irritation and anger with the one who is in pain because we are in pain. Job's wife had lost everything. She had lost her security. And when you lose your security, it's easy to respond in frustration and fear because life no longer feels stable and the future is uncertain. And in her own pain and grief, Job's wife lost her ability to see God as loving and good and just. She sees her suffering and the suffering of her husband as an indication that God has forsaken his promises to them and that his word to them is not true. After all, don't you know it to be true that when you're in the midst of pain, it's easier to lower your view of God than to strengthen your faith? And in this moment, she lowered her view of God instead of strengthening and resting in her faith. Friends, in, in times of severe testing, our first question must not be how quick can I get out of this? But what can I get from this? What is God doing in my life? Job's wife thought she had the problem solved. Curse God and die and it will all be over. But Job knew better. And we need to remember that faith is obeying God in spite of our feelings, in spite of our circumstances, and in spite of the consequences, knowing that He is working His purposes and His plans in our lives, even when we suffer. We not only see the response of Satan to suffering and the response of Job's wife to suffering, we also see the response of Job to suffering in verse 10. The Bible says, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Instead of listening to his wife's advice, Job corrected her, telling her that she was speaking as one of the foolish women would speak. What, what was he saying to her? Well, this word foolish that he uses refers to someone who totally denounces the ways of God. She had totally denounced God's ways and purposes. And Job is saying to her, your remedy is foolish. You're acting like someone who no longer believes in God in the midst of your suffering. And after correcting her, in verse number 10, Job, in the form of a question, responded with one of the strongest statements of faith as it deals to God in suffering that has ever been uttered. Do you see it in the text? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive 
evil. Instead of turning away from God like Job's wife did, Job leaned in to God. And Job's response to suffering at this point in the narrative can be characterized as the stance of a patient sufferer, one who is quietly waiting for God. That is what Job is doing in this moment. And he teaches us that when we're going through tough times, one of the things that we need more than anything else, listen church, is patience. When we're under pressure, when we feel the weight of pain, if we are not careful, we can make poor decisions and end up responding in a foolish way, just like Job's wife. And the Apostle James helps us understand Job's posture of patience in suffering. He describes Job this way in James chapter 5 and verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness or the patience of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And in this verse, James elevates Job as a strong example of faith, as a strong example of patience in the midst of suffering, as a strong example of determined perseverance under trial. Have you considered the patience of Job in his suffering? But did you hear the rest of the verse? Even as he elevates Job in his patience in suffering, James implies that the whole situation in Job's life really isn't about Job. It's about God and his character. And that's why James says all of this was to reveal how the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. That's the point. How could Job be patient in suffering? Because God is compassionate and merciful. Because when we draw near to God, God draws near to us. Satan's attacks were intense and wicked. Job's trials were long and miserable. But God remained compassionate and merciful. And that is why Job says, Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Translated for you this way, shall we not receive the blessings of God and the calamities at the same time? Do you see what's happening in the text, friends? Where does the good in life come from? God. Where do the calamities come from? God. Why? Because God is sovereign. You're not. Suffering is not. Satan is not. God is. And notice what the text says. Shall we not receive good and calamity? Receive is an active word. It means that we're participating with providence, as one writer says. We're not merely submitting to it. We are receiving it. We are receiving the good as a gift from God. And we are receiving the calamities as a gift from God. Even though we don't understand why. And in this moment, 
in his patient suffering. Job is unshaken in his belief that God alone has the right to give blessing. And God alone has the right to take away blessing. And it is our responsibility to receive both patiently in dependence upon him. And as the rest of the book will teach us, God can be trusted and worshipped even when we can't understand everything that is happening in our lives. He's still worthy of our trust. He's still worthy of our worship. Do you realize this morning, friends, that the character of God and the glory of God is more important than your earthly comfort. That the character of God and the glory of God is more important than your earthly understanding. It matters now and in the life to come that there is a man from the land of us who will worship God because he is worthy of worship no matter what. And it matters in this life and in the life to come that you and I would worship God simply because he is worthy of worship no matter what. And that is what Job did. Well, we've seen the response of Satan to suffering, the response of Job's wife to suffering, the response of Job to suffering. Finally, we see the response of Job's friends to suffering. They did three things. In verse number 11, the Bible says that they went to Job. You've all heard the phrase, Job's comforters. It's a familiar phrase used to describe those whose counsel doesn't help you. It makes you feel worse in the end. And most of the commentary surrounding Job's friends is negative, and we'll get to that in a few weeks. But here at the outset, they did some things right. Verse 11 says that they went to Job when he was in trouble. And this is significant because this took substantial effort on their parts. All three of his friends lived in three different locations. And they all heard the news. And they all contacted one another. And they made a plan to meet in a certain place. And then to travel to Job together. And notice what verse 11 says. They did this to show him sympathy and comfort. The word sympathy means that they came to enter into and share in Job's grief. And the word comfort means that they came to ease his pain in his suffering. One commentator described their actions in verse 11 as the ministry of presence. This is so helpful in responding to suffering. He said presence is a service of vulnerability. To be present to others is to put oneself in the position of being vulnerable to what they are vulnerable to. And of being vulnerable to them. It means being willing to suffer what the other suffers. And to go with the sufferer in his or her own suffering. Presence involves exposing oneself to what the sufferer is exposed to. And being with the other in that vulnerability. The ministry of presence. 
And that's what Job's friends did. They became vulnerable to what Job was vulnerable to. And they went to Job as an act of sympathy and comfort. And here, notice, at least in the beginning, these friends didn't theologize. They didn't try to explain to Job all the reasons for his suffering through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book. They didn't opine on all of the different reasons why God might have afflicted him. They went to Job and extended sympathy and comfort. Secondly, in verse 12, they wept with Job. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. You'll notice in verse 12 that Job was so affected by these sores, and they had taken such a toll on his body, that when his three friends saw him from a distance sitting on top of that ash heap, they could not recognize him. And when they got closer, they were so moved by the sight that they saw. Look at what the text says. They expressed the intensity of their grief by raising their voices in wails. They wept. They tore their robes from top to bottom as a sign of mourning. And they sprinkled dust all over themselves and threw it up towards heaven. And in these actions, they remind us that when someone is suffering... Sometimes the best response we can give to them is to go to the ash heap, sit down in the ashes with them, and cry by their side. Finally, in verse 13, they watched Job. Now this is an interesting verse. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Notice the narrator says that for seven days and for seven nights, no one spoke a word to Job because of the greatness of his sufferings. Many have commented that they made up for their silence later, as you will see, and they certainly did. But Christopher Ashe, in his uh, powerful commentary on the book of Job, offers a different insight. He says that their silence mostly interpreted as being helpful, was actually the exact opposite. And this is what he said. Their silence may not have been as helpful as it is often assumed. The Bible hints that what they do, tearing clothes, throwing dust on the head, taking seven days, is precisely what one would do in mourning with a corpse. It may be that their silence is not so much a silence of sympathy, listen, as a silence of bankruptcy. They are silent because they have nothing to say. To them, their friend is as good as dead. And if we translate it to our culture, it's as if they called for the hearse and the funeral home and they sat by Job with an open coffin waiting for him to die. There he is. All alone in his suffering. And one of the main lessons that we can learn from this chapter is that suffering is made worse by isolation. 
Job's life, as we've seen in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, is like the peeling of an onion. His sufferings began with the outer layers of his life. His possessions and his wealth were gone. Satan then peeled another layer and brought those sufferings much closer by taking his children. Satan then peeled another layer and brought suffering even closer when he attacked Job's body with illness. But the worst part of his suffering was being isolated by his community, by his wife, by his friends. And in this moment, he feels that he's even being forgotten by God himself. Job's isolation, loneliness, and sense of abandonment in the midst of suffering points us to another suffering servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Job's sense of suffering and abandonment and all human suffering and abandonment are answered by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus is not distant to our human experiences of suffering. Rather, Jesus experienced every single thing that you and I will go through in our suffering, including abandonment. He is the suffering servant. He is the one whom his friends fell asleep when he asked them to pray with him and for him. He is the one who hung on the cross when his father turned his back on the sin of the world that rested upon him. He is the one, as the great hymn writer said, who went to Calvary and suffered and died alone. That's why true comfort for those who suffer is found in looking to Jesus. And I would say to every person in this room this morning and every person watching on live stream, if you're suffering today, look to the cross. If you're trying to help someone who is going through suffering today, remind them of Jesus and remind them to look to the cross. The comfort provided by Jesus for those who suffer is not merely that he suffered too and identifies with us in our suffering. It's that Jesus suffered to end all suffering. It is that Jesus promises to right all the wrongs of this world. It is the good news that the one who has been forsaken promises never to forsake us in our suffering. So, friends, look to the cross. There's hope for you there. When it comes to the subject of suffering, one of the most difficult areas to navigate correctly in the midst of suffering and with those who are suffering is our response. And this chapter should challenge us to think about how we respond to suffering, both in our lives and in the lives of those around us. There's positive ways to respond, and there's negative ways to respond. So when life goes from bad to worse, may we, like Job, not only see what was lost, but what we have left. May we, like Job, not only see the things that are taken, but the things that God gave us in the first place. And may we, like Job, in the midst of the ashes, in the midst of the suffering, worship God, relentlessly trusting in the unchanging, unshakable character of God.
There is hope in this God. Let's pray.